Chapter Two, The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Girl at Central by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter Two. About a mile from Longwood, standing among ancient, beautiful trees, is Mapleshade, Doctor Dan Fowler's place. It was once a farmhouse over a century old, but two and a half years ago, when Doctor Fowler bought it, he fixed it all up raised the roof, built on a servant's wing and a piazza with columns, and turned the farm buildings into a garage. Artists and such people say it's the prettiest place in this part of the state, and it certainly is a picture, especially in summer, with the lawns mown close as velvet, and the flower-beds like bits of carpet laid out to air. The doctor bought a big bit of land with it, I don't know how many hundred acres, so the house, though it's not far from the village, is kind of secluded and shut away. You get to it by Maple Lane, a little winding road that runs between trees caught together with wild grape and Virginia creeper. In summer they're like green walls, all draped over with the vines, and in winter they turn into a rustling gray hedge, woven so close it's hard to see through. About ten minutes' walk from the gate of Maple Shade, there's a pine that was struck by lightning and stands up black and bare. When the house was finished, the doctor, who was a bachelor, married Mrs. Hesketh, a widow lady, accounted rich, and he and she came up there as bride and groom with her daughter, Sylvia Hesketh. I hadn't come yet, but from what I've heard, there was gossip about them from the start. What I can say from my own experience is that I'd hardly got my grip unpacked when I began to hear of the folks at Mapleshade. They lived in great style with a housekeeper, a butler, and a French maid for the ladies. In the garage were three automobiles, Mrs. Fowler's limousine, the doctor's car, and a dandy little roadster that belonged to Miss Sylvia. Neither she nor the doctor bothered much with the chauffeur. They left him to take Mrs. Fowler round and drove themselves, the joke going that if Miss Sylvia ever went broke, she could qualify for a chauffeur's job. After a while the story came out that it wasn't Mrs. Fowler who was so rich, but Miss Hesketh. The late Mr. Hesketh had only left his wife a small fortune, willing the rest, millions it was said, to his daughter. She was a minor, nineteen, and the trustees of the estate allowed her a lot of money for her maintenance, thirty thousand a year they had it in Longwood. In spite of the grand way they lived, there wasn't much company at Mapleshade. Anne Hennessy, the housekeeper, told me Mrs. Fowler was so dead in love with her husband she didn't want the bother of entertaining people, and the doctor liked a quiet life. He'd been a celebrated surgeon in New York, but had retired only for consultations and special cases now and again. He was very good to the people round about, and would come in and help when our little Dr. Pease or Dr. Graham at the junction were up against something serious. I'll never forget when Mick Donahue, the station agent's boy, got run over by freight number 22. But I'm sidetracked again. Anyhow, the doctor amputated the leg, and little Mick stumping around on a wooden pin almost as good as ever. But even so, they weren't liked much. They held their heads very high, Mrs. Fowler driving through the village like it was Fifth Avenue, 
sending the chauffeur into the shops and not at all affable to the tradespeople. The doctor wouldn't trouble to give you so much as a nod, just stride along looking straight ahead. When the story got about that he'd lost most of the money he'd made doctoring, I didn't bear any resentment, seeing it was worry that made him that way. But Miss Sylvia was made on a different measure. My, but she was a winner. Even after I knew what brought Jack Reddy in from Firehill so often, I couldn't be set against her. Jealous I might be of a girl like myself, but not of one who was the queen bee of the hive. She was a beauty from the ground up, a blonde with hair like corn silk that she wore in a loose, fluffy knot with little curly ends hanging on her neck. Her face was pure pink and white, the only dark thing in it her big brown eyes that were as clear and soft as a baby's. And she was a great dresser, always the latest novelty and looking prettier in each one. Mrs. Galway'd say to me, with her nose caught up scornful, To my mind it's not refined to advertise your wealth on your back. But I didn't worry, knowing Mrs. Galway'd have advertised hers if she'd had the wealth, or a decent-shaped back to advertise it on, which she hadn't, being round-shouldered. There was none of the haughty ways of her parents about Miss Sylvia. When she'd come into the exchange to send a call, a thing that puzzled me at first, but I soon caught on. She'd always stop and have a pleasant word with me. On bright afternoons, I'd see her pass on horseback, straight as an arrow, with a man's hat on her golden hair. She'd always have a smile for everyone, touching her hat brim real sporty with the end of her whip. Even when she was in her motor speeding down Main Street, she'd give you a hail as jolly as if she was your college chum. Sometimes she'd be alone, but generally there was a man along. There were a lot of them hanging around her, which was natural seeing she had everything to draw them like a candle drying moths. They'd come and go from town and now and then stay over Sunday at the Longwood Inn. It's a swell little place done up in the colonial style, and you'd see them riding and walking with her, very devoted. At first everybody thought her parents were agreeable to all the attention she was getting. It wasn't till the Mapleshade servants began to talk too much that we heard the Fowlers, especially the doctor, didn't like it. I hadn't known her long before I began to notice something that interested me. A telephone girl sees so many people and hears such a lot of confidential things on the wire that she gets to know more than most about what I suppose you'd call human nature. It's a study that's always attracted me and in Miss Sylvia's case there was a double attraction. I was curious about her for myself, and I was curious about her because of Jack Reddy. What I noticed was that she was so different with men to what she was with women, affable to both, but it was another kind of affability. I've seen considerably many girls trying to throw their harpoons into men, and doing it too but they were in the booby class beside Miss Sylvia. She was what the novelists call a coquette, but she was that dainty and sly about it that I don't believe any of the victims knew it. It wasn't what she said, either, more the way she looked and the soft, sweet manner she had, as if she thought more of the chap she was talking to than anybody else in the world. 
she'd be that way to one in my exchange and the next day i'd see her just the same with another in the drug store it made me uneasy even if the man you love doesn't love you you don't want to see him fooled but i said nothing i'm the close sort and it wasn't till i came to be friends with ann hennessy that i heard the inside facts about the family at mapleshade ann hennessy was a canadian and a fine girl she was a lady and had a lady's job seventy-five a month and her own bathroom and being the real thing she didn't put on any airs but when she liked me made right up to me and we soon were pals after work hours i'd sometimes go up to her at mapleshade or she'd come down to see me over the elite i remember it was in my room one spring evening me lying on the bed and ann sitting by the open window that she began to talk about the Fowlers. She was not one to carry tales, but I could see she had something on her mind, and for the first time she loosened up. I was picking over a box of chocolates, and I didn't give her a hint how keen I was to hear, acting like the candies had the best part of my attention. She began saying the doctor and Miss Sylvia didn't get on well. "'That's just like a novel,' I answered the heroine's stepfather always her natural enemy he's not that in this case said anne she speaks english fine like the teachers in the high i'm sure he means well by her but they can't get on at all they're always quarrelling there's many a gilded home hides a tragedy what do they fight about things she does he disapproves of she's very spoiled and self-willed no one's ever controlled her, and she resents it from him. What's he disapprove of? Anne didn't answer right off, looking thoughtful out of the window. Then she said, slow as if she was considering her words, I'm going to tell you, Molly, because I know you're no gossip and can be trusted. And the truth is, I'm worried. I don't like the situation up at Mapleshade. I swung my feet onto the floor and sat up on the edge of the bed, nibbling at a chocolate almond. "'Here's where I get dumb,' I said, sort of casual to encourage her. "'Sylvia Hesketh's a girl that needs a strong hand over her, and there's no one has it. Her father's dead. Her mother—poor Mrs. Fowler's only a grown-up baby ready to say black is white if her husband wants her to.' and Dr. Fowler's trying to do it, and he's going about it all wrong. You see, she said, turning to me very serious, it's not only that she's headstrong and extravagant, but she's an incorrigible flirt. Is there a place in the back of the book where you can find out what incorrigible means? I said. Anne smiled, but not as if she felt like it uncontrollable irrepressible her mother mrs fowler's ready to tell me anything and everything says she's always been like that and of course with her looks and her fortune the men are around her like flies around honey why does the doctor mind that i suppose he wouldn't mind if they just came to mapleshade or longwood but that's what the quarrelling's about he's found out that she meets them in town goes to lunch in the matinee with them. Excuse me, but I left my etiquette book on the piano. 
What's wrong about going to the matinee or to lunch? Nothing's really wrong. Mind you, Molly, I know Sylvia through and through, and there's no harm in her. It's just the bringing up and the spoiling and the admiration. But, of course, in her position, a girl doesn't go about that way without a chaperone. The doctor's perfectly right to object. I was looking down, pretending to hunt over the box. Who does she go with? I said. Oh, there are several. A man named Carisbrook. I'd seen him often. A swell guy in white spats and a high hat. And a young lawyer called Dunham and Ben Robinson, a Canadian like me. People see her with them and tell the doctor, and there's a row. I looked into the box as careful as if I was searching for a diamond. Ain't Mr. Reddy one of the happy family? I asked. Ah, here's the last almond. Oh, of course, young Reddy. I think it would be a good thing if she married him. Everybody says he's a fine fellow, and I tell you now, Molly, with Sylvia so willful and the doctor so domineering, and Mrs. Fowler being pulled to pieces between them, things at Mapleshade can't go on long the way they are. That was in May. At the end of June the Fowlers went up to Bar Harbor with all their outfit for the summer. After that Jack Reddy didn't come into Longwood much. I heard that he was spending a good deal of his time at the bungalow at Hochelaga Lake, and I did see him a few times meeting his company at the train. He had some weekend parties out there, and bringing them back in the gray car. At the end of September the Fowlers came home. It was great weather, clear and crisp with the feel of frost in the air. Most everybody was out of doors, and I saw Sylvia often, sometimes on horseback, sometimes driving her motor. She was prettier than ever for the change and seemed like she couldn't stay in the house. I'd see her riding toward home in the red light of the sunset, and as I walked back from work her car often would flash past me, speeding through the early dark toward Maple Lane. Anne said they'd had a fairly peaceful summer, and she hoped they were going to get on better. There had only been one row. That was about a man who was up at Bar Harbor, and had met Sylvia, and paid her a good deal of attention. The doctor had been very angry, as he disapproved of the man. Cokesbury was his name. Cokesbury? I cut in, surprised. We were in Anne's room that evening. Why, he belongs round here. Anne had heard that, and wanted to know what I knew about him, which I'll write down in this place, as it seems to fit in, and has to be told somewhere. When I first came to Longwood, Mr. and Mrs. Cokesbury were living on their estate, Cokesbury Lodge, about twenty-five miles from us, near Azalea. They had been in France for a year previous to that, then come back, and taken up their residence in Mr. Cokesbury's country seat, and it was shortly after that that Mrs. Cokesbury died there, leaving three children. For a while the widower stayed on with nurses and governesses to look after the poor motherless kids. Then, the eldest boy taking sick and nearly dying, he decided to send them to his wife's parents, who had wanted them since Mrs. Cokesbury's death. So the establishment at the lodge was broken up, and Mr. Cokesbury went to live in town. There were rumors that the house was to be sold, 
but in the spring sands the pullman conductor told me that mr cokesbury had been down several times staying over sunday and had said he had given up the idea of selling the place he told sands he couldn't get his price for it and what was the sense of selling at a loss especially when he could come out there and get a breath of country air when he was scorched up in the city heat i'd passed the house one day in august when i was on an auto ride with some friends it was a big rambling place with a lot of dismal-looking pines around it about five miles from azalea and with no near neighbors mr cokesbury only kept one car he'd had several when his wife was there and used to drive himself down from the lodge to the station leave his car in the azalea garage and drive himself back the next time he came he had no servants or caretaker which he didn't need as after mrs cokesbury's death all the valuable things had been taken out of the house and sent to town for storage it gave me a jar to hear that sylvia hesketh who in my mind was as good as engaged to jack reddy would have anything to do with him i'd never seen him but i'd heard a lot that wasn't to his credit he hadn't been good to his wife everybody said she was a real lady but was the gay wild kind and not young either anne said he was forty if he was a day when i asked her what sylvia could see in an old gink like that she just shrugged up her shoulders and said who could tell sylvia was made that way she was like some woman whose name i can't remember who sat on a rock and sang to the sailors till they got crazy and jumped into the water my head was full of these things one glorious afternoon toward the end of october when it being my holiday i started out for a walk through the woods the woods cover the hills behind the village and they're grand miles and miles of them but wait there was a little thing that happened by the way that's worth telling for it gave me a premonition is that the word or maybe i'd better say connected up with what was in my mind i was walking slow down main street when opposite the post office i saw all the loafers and most of the tradespeople lined up in a ring staring at a bunch of those dago acrobats that go about the state all summer doing stunts on a bit of carpet i'd seen them often chaps in dirty pink tights walking on their hands and rolling around in knots and i wouldn't have stopped but i got a glimpse of little mick donahue stumping around the outside trying to squeeze in and trying not to cry because he couldn't so i stopped and hoisted him up for a good view telling the men in front to break away for the kid to see there was a dago scraping on a fiddle and while the acrobats were performing on their carpet a big bear with a little brown shriveled-up man holding it by a chain was dancing and when i got my first look at that bear in spite of all my worry i burst out laughing for dancing away there solemn and slow it was the dead image of dr fowler you'd have laughed yourself if you'd seen it that is if you'd known the doctor there was something so like him in its expression sort of gloomy and thoughtful and its little eyes were set up high in its head and looking angry at the crowd as if it despised them when its master jerked the chain and shouted something in a foreign lingo it hitched up its lip like it was trying to smile and that sideways grin as if it didn't feel at all pleasant 
was just the way the doctor'd smile when he came into the exchange and gave me a number. It fascinated me, and I stood staring with little Mick sitting on my arm, just loving it all, his dirty little fist clasped around a penny. Then the music stopped and one of the acrobats came round with a hat, and little Mick gave a great sigh as if he was coming out of a dream. "'If you hadn't come, Molly, I'd have missed it,' he said, looking into my face in that sweet, wistful way sickly kids have. "'And it's the last time they'll be round this year.' I kissed him and put him down and told the men as I squeezed out to keep him in the front or they'd hear from me. Then I walked off towards the woods, thinking. It was a funny idea I'd got into my head. I'd once read in a paper that when people looked like animals they resembled the animals in their dispositions. And I was wondering, was Dr. Fowler like a bear? Grouchy, and when you crossed him, savage. Maybe it was because I'd been so worried, but it gave me a kind of chill. My thoughts went back to Mapleshade, and I got one of those queer glimpses, like a curtain was lifted for a second and you could see things in the future, of trouble there. Something dark. I don't know how to explain it, but it was as if I got a new line on the doctor, as if the bear had made me see through the surface clear into him. I tried to shake it off, for I wanted to enjoy my afternoon in the woods. They are beautiful at that season. The trees full of colored leaves and all quiet except for the rustlings of little animals round the roots. There's a road that winds along under the branches and trails soft underfoot with fallen leaves and moss that you can follow for miles. I was coming down one of these, making no more noise than the squirrels, when just before it crossed the road I saw something and stopped. There, sitting side by side on a log, were Sylvia Hesketh and a man. Close to them, run off to the side, was a motor, and near it tied to a tree, a horse with a lady's saddle. Sylvia was in her riding dress, looking a picture, her eyes on the ground, and slapping softly with her whip on the side of her boot. The man was leaning toward her, talking low and earnest and staring hard into her face. To my knowledge, I'd never seen him before, and it gave me a start, me saying, surprised to myself, Hello, here's another one. He was a big, powerful chap with a square, healthy-looking face and wide shoulders on him like a prize-fighter. He was dressed in a loose coat and knickerbockers, and as he talked he had his hands spread out, one on each knee, great brown hands with hair on them. I was close enough to see that, but he was speaking so low and I was so scared that they'd see me and think I was spying that I didn't hear what he was saying. The only one that saw me was the horse. It looked up sudden with its ears pricked, staring surprised with its soft, gentle eyes. I stole away like a robber, not making a speck of noise. All the joy I'd been taking in the walk under the colored leaves was gone. I felt kind of shriveled up inside the way you feel when someone you love is sick. I couldn't bear to think that Jack Reddy was giving his heart to a girl who'd meet another man out in the woods and listen to him so coy and yet so interested. As far as I can remember, that was a little over a month from the fatal day. 
all the rest of october and through the first part of november things went along quiet and peaceful and then suddenly everything came together quick like a blow end of chapter two